Thank you for downloading this Brum Radio podcast. For more podcasts, visit brumradio.com. Hello and welcome to this very special podcast, the official launch of the action thriller novel Colony by debut author Benjamin Cross. This special session was recorded over Zoom on the 28th of January, the book's official release date, and was done in front of a live home audience. This presentation features readings, chats, and a Q&A section towards the end, and I'll be back to give you some links at the end of the podcast. But for now, we join our author reading the prologue to the book set in 6000 BC. This is Colony. The hunter's whalebone skis tore across the drift, carving up the surface and thrusting clouds of snow into his wake. The slipstream lashed his cheeks as he accelerated. His eyes watered, his muscles ached. Beneath the thick fur lining of his jacket, he could feel the bite of his talisman, the tips of the three teeth probing at his skin. He threw a glance behind. Nothing. It was nowhere to be seen. Ahead, the slope gouged a narrow aisle through the outcrops of rock, before disappearing into the blizzard. The snowfall was thickening around him. The mist was closing in fast. Gritting his teeth, he drove his ski poles hard into the snow and propelled himself onwards. As he sped down slope, the storm fed him glimpses of the world ahead. And there was something there, at the bottom of the slope, like a dark ribbon draped across his path. It grew wider and darker with every glance. The hunter's eyes bulged with terror. It was a gorge, wide and deep, hewn into the valley. With no time to lose, he swerved away, calling on every last fibre of skill to keep his balance, to weave amongst the scattered outcrops now littering the way ahead. His ski ploughed into a talon of rock. There was a crunch as the shaft split open. His heart sank, his legs buckled, and he was slung forward. In the chaos that followed, the momentum toyed with him, twisting his limbs around his torso. As he hit the ground, his ski snapped off at the toe and the jagged splinter sheared into his gut. He tumbled on for what seemed like eternity. Then silence. He blinked his eyes open. The world was now a brutal haze. Blood dripped from his nose and lips, freezing into trails in the snow. He waited, breathed, slowly unfolded himself. As the delirium subsided, pain flared in his stomach and sent a surge of adrenaline coursing through his veins. He staggered to his feet. His ribs were fractured and his shoulder was dislocated, but he had to keep moving. Instinctively, he reached for the shaft of bone sticking spear-like from his gut. Then he thought better. Leaving it to plug the wound, he took off as fast as he could along the side of the gorge. Up ahead, he could make out a towering rock face. A low, narrow tunnel was worn into its base where the line of the gorge passed through. It wasn't much, but it was shelter. As he limped towards it, the world bucked suddenly and he was thrown forward. On reflex, he rolled straight over, straining for breath and clawing the snow from his face. He scanned around, his head darting from side to side with every imagined movement, his eyes wide, frantic. But there was nothing, just a thick curtain of white that suffocated his senses. He glanced behind, searching out the tunnel. It was only a few strides away and he prepared to drag himself to his feet. A guttural hiss broke the silence. The air froze in his lungs. It was there, 
right in front of him, its head cocked, its mouth cracked open, watching. He had never believed the stories meant to frighten him as a child, but here they were. Every tale, every description, every warning that he had ever ignored, staring down at him through the flurry. Plumes of condensed breath fired from its nostrils as it slunk forward a pace, bobbing its head and shaking the snow from its back. Then it froze, its lips curling, peeling back to reveal teeth emerging from its bloodshot gums. With its face caught in a snarl, it stretched its neck towards him and bellowed. The hideous sound seemed to bite into his skull, and the hunter scrabbled to his feet in sheer terror. His hand jumped instinctively to the bag hanging from his belt. He fought with the lashings, desperately wrenching them free, until he could tear the fibre sack loose and hold it before him. The creature's eyes flashed. It screamed out and lunged at him, sending the bag flying from his grip and skidding across the ice into the mouth of the tunnel. With the creature's frenzied screeching ringing in his ears, the hunter dropped to his knees and scrabbled after it dragging himself in through the narrow folds of rock. The cold seeped up into his palms. Then the gut-churning stench of putrefying meat wafted in from behind him. Pain erupted in his ankles and panic took hold. He screamed out, struggling as unseen teeth hacked into his flesh and stripped the strings of muscle from his bones. Clouds of steam billowed up into the night as his blood spilt out in rivers and the freezing air congealed with the crunching of bone. And as the world began to fade, he reached forward and dug his fingers into the surface of the ancient stone. Then, with all that remained of his strength, he heaved himself on into the dark. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> See a few smiling faces, a few grimaces. It scared the life out of me when I first read it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had somebody on uh, uh, Twitter earlier today asking me about that and saying, should I read it with the light on or off? And I was like, yeah, I'd start with it on. <laughs> Probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, scared the life out of me. So I knew I was going to be in for some thrills and spills when reading this book. So without spilling too much, tell us a little bit more about what Colony is all about. Yeah, sure. So it's the story of a archaeology professor, a Scottish archaeology professor who's at the University of Aberdeen. And he is uh, he's basically recruited into a survey team who are sent out to a remote Arctic island. It's about a thousand kilometers north of uh, the Russian uh, northern coastline. It's uh, it's an Arctic, I won't say wasteland um, because it's actually teeming with life. But um, it's yeah, it's it's hostile. Uh, it's remote. And um yeah, he's not been on there long before he makes a discovery um, and he discovers uh, an ice mummy. So basically uh, a frozen prehistoric corpse. And it's obviously because the temperature has been so low for so long, it's freeze dried the body and uh, it's survived through to present practically without any any signs of decay. So it's a very rare thing and it's a very great find for him to make. But the problem is before he can go ahead and make anything of it, Somebody else who's involved with this mission, uh, who has other ideas about whether it should be successful or not, causes them all to become stranded. And yeah, they soon realise that they're not alone on this island. And uh, yeah, they're all in, in pretty deep trouble. So Perilous. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned uh, Callum Ross there. Um, who are 
some of your other characters that you've written in this one? So, I mean, there's, there's quite a colourful cast of characters, actually. I mean, the, the survey team um, are probably the characters that you'll become most familiar with through the course of the book. Um, there is uh, a Russian ecologist called Larry Lebedev, who is, uh, she's out there to obviously study the uh, flora and fauna on the island, of which there's a surprisingly large amount, um, e- even though it's so remote. There is a, a Canadian paleontologist who I particularly enjoyed writing because she's got such a kind of conflicted personality. She's she's very much prone to panic. But if you can get her talking about sort of academic concepts and, you know, the scientific sides of things that she's interested in, then it, it's almost as if she forgets the danger she's in. And she's, you know, she she's as brave as anybody else. There's a, a guy, a Texan called Dan Peterson, who's there. He's a marine biologist. So he spends a lot of time in his submarine um, looking for sort of marine microfauna, uh, algae and things of that nature. Um, and then there are also some quite colourful soldiers as well. So these are Spetsnaz or uh, Russian special forces, basically, who are, um, they've been sent out to act security on the boat that the team are stationed on. And they're led by a guy called Starshin Okoykov. And Starshin has uh, the equivalent of um, Sergeant Major, really, within the, the Russian army. Um, so, yeah, he's about as high up as you can get and about as knowledgeable as you can get before you become a commissioned officer. Uh, and he's, yeah, he's a hard ass, basically. So, um, <laughs> yeah, he was quite interesting to write. Wonderful. So I've been looking enough to read it already. And some of the themes going on in the book, uh, tell us a little bit about those themes, if you can. Yeah. So, I mean, it's on the face of it, ostensibly, it's it's an action thriller, you know, and what the, my primary sort of the thing that I really wanted to to sort of achieve with this novel was was to provide people with escapism, you know, um, pure and simple. It's, it's exactly the sort of heart racing, you know, pulse raising sort of thing that I love to read and that takes me out of the real world. However, there are some other sort of underlying themes within it as well. And probably the main one is climate change. So in a kind of a subtle sense, um, very passively, it's it's only because the ice has melted to the extent that it has recently um, that the team are able to get out onto this island in the first place at all. You know, I mean, in a very real as well as a metaphorical sense, the fact that they're in so much danger really is because, you know, the melting of the ice caps has, or the receding of the ice caps rather has allowed them to put themselves in in that place, which obviously people are currently trying to exploit. Um, in terms of gas and, and, and oil reserves in particular. Preservation of the ecosystems, that's something that uh, you're passionate about in your personal life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been looking into this sort of thing an awful lot recently. I've been, myself and my family moved out to um, Carmarthenshire recently, so we're in a we're in quite a lucky situation where we've got a little bit of land next to our house where I've uh, got some trees and I was just interested the other day to have a look and see um, you know what what my carbon footprint would be um, if I took into account you know what I produce and what these trees take in as a sink and it seems as if I'm actually I'm pretty much neutral which was a great thing it, it, it made me more happy than I thought it would um, to find that out whether I did the maths right or not is another matter but that's what it seemed to be suggesting, but certainly, yeah, I've always had a um, you know a passion for um, pr- preservation of wildlife um, and obviously heritage as well. So yeah, I'm I'm going to be looking to plant some more trees as well on next to the house, which is uh, yeah, it's going to going to keep me busy. Just looking around, I'm, I'm, I can spot a few vegans in the audience. Have you gone vegan yet? They're going to want to know that. <laughs> I, I'm kind of organically moving towards veganism. I haven't I haven't taken the plunge. Um, I I guess I don't eat 
a particular lot of, of meat and I stopped drinking cow's milk quite a long time ago now, probably a couple of years, moved on to, to soy milk and I actually prefer eating tea and coffee and things. So, you know, I'm kind of gradually moving that way anyway, I think, but um, we'll see. <laughs> prefer the oat milk myself, I'll be honest. It's good. Yeah, so it's okay. good. yeah hazelnut all the rest of it yeah i can't really get on with coconut milk i have to say I'm, it's just, not something just water isn't it well it, it's like sugary water to me horrible flavor water i know a lot of people do really like it so okay well let's move on from uh, saving the planet just for a second archaeology obviously plays a big part uh, in the story so tell us about your career in archaeology Okay, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I started in archaeology um, back in the early noughties, really. I started, I went to university um, in Reading, and I started off there doing English literature, ironically enough. Um, but uh, oddly, for somebody that, that's always loved books and writing, um, it, it wasn't really doing it for me. Um, it was too, I felt too constrained by it. it was people were telling me what to read and when by and what I had to feel. So I, after a year, I started looking around for alternatives and I'm, I was lucky enough to get onto the archaeology course at Reading, which was a, a, a very well-regarded course with some fantastic, um, fairly eminent professors, uh, very comical and uh, lovely chaps as well. And um, I, I, I never looked back really, you know, I, um, from, from that point on, I, I caught the bug finished my degree there and went off and started digging in the field, did a postgrad at one point. And then latterly in my career, I started moving on to sort of writing reports about what had been dug up and then giving advice to people about where they need to dig and who they should use to do it. So yeah, I've been involved for quite a long time now in a, across the spectrum, really. So did you, did you just take up archaeology on a whim? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I guess there was an element of risk when I when I first moved over from uh, fr from English. Yeah, I, I didn't really know anything about it, and it was just something that fascinated me. I guess when I first started at uni, I wouldn't have had a, I, I it just wouldn't have occurred to me that you could even study it as a course. To be honest. Also, I'm sure many people are going to want to know this, but um, what's the best thing you found? <laughs> So yeah, everybody wants to know about have I found any gold and all. We found the Ark of the Covenant. Come on, <laughs> yeah. tell me. Not yet, no. not yet. But uh, you know, um, there's still time. You know, I'm still still in the trade. So um, uh, one day maybe I will. But um, no, I think some of the most interesting things that I've found are uh, things like um, offerings people have made. So you know, like r ritual offerings and burials where people have put grave goods in and things like that. Really, you know, it's it's obviously a very sensitive thing if you if you're finding. Um, people you know people's remains and things like that but obviously the best thing you can do is move them out of the way before whatever gets built gets built so it's um you know it's it's for the best in the end and yeah fascinating didn't you tell me previously that um some of the things on the uh on the, the shelf behind you you found in your own garden is that right yeah i have actually yeah um so when we moved in here which was about a couple of years ago now i started looking at the historic maps and all that sort of stuff for the house unsurprisingly maybe um, and it turned out that there was there used to be an old property boundary down the bottom of the garden so me and my boy ethan were out there the one day and we were just digging around and we started turning up loads and loads of bits of pottery and it was all sort of 18th or 19th century stuff but obviously if you've got a big dump that's been sort of used as a refuse pit over the years then you will find the latest stuff first so we started uh, digging a hole basically and uh, <laughs> well much to my wife's dismay initially but she got into it afterwards uh, I dug an enormous great trench across <laughs> half the garden <laughs> and uh, excavated this ditch basically and pulled a load of this stuff out so um, there's there's an awful lot of um, 
sort of stoneware and, and various other bits and pieces. There were also leather shoes, quite a few leather shoes in there. Um, and probably the earliest things I found went back to the 1700s, early 1700s, perhaps even earlier. So, um, yeah. Anything uh, you can take on the Antiques Roadshow? Uh, maybe. I don't know. No, nothing Nothing that's going to make me rich overnight, put it that way. But, um, sure. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, archaeology and writing are your two sort of passions then. Is a synergy between those two things? There's Yeah, well, a synergy. There's, there's definitely a crossover. I mean... Um, you know, in essence, both of them are, they, they reflect the process of, of telling a narrative. So obviously, uh, writing novels is very directly um, putting a narrative down and, and allowing other people to read it. But with archaeology, it's uh, it's very similar. It's just slightly more subtle. It's, you know, we, we will dig a hole, for example, we'll find a couple of scraps of pottery. It would be nothing, you know, unless somebody looked at it and said, actually, these were probably made here, which suggests that they were related to, I don't know, industry or something. And given that, I don't know, we've never found anything of this nature around here before, then it's possibly this structure that appears on this map, you know, and you gradually piece things together and you turn it into a coherent story, which you can then present to people. So obviously we're working in the industry. I'm, I'm quite lucky to be on the, on the rock face of it all and to see it, but it's not my heritage, you know, it's everybody's. So what we really need to do is piece it all together make it coherent make it engaging and interesting and and present it to people have you kept a diary i'm going to make a lot of indiana jones references just so you know <laughs> have you kept a diary i, I haven't got a grail diary unfortunately oh. I, I wish i did okay I'll, fair enough yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay well should we um should we have another reading from the book yeah absolutely yeah okay what we're we gonna have okay i think we're we're gonna go for chapter three part three so this is i don't think this is too much of a spoiler um I can't go too far into the book, basically, without without sort of it becoming a spoiler. So I'm kind of, um, this is a bit of a middle ground, really. So just to give you a bit of background as well, there are a couple of characters mentioned in here, if you haven't read it yet. Uh, one of them's called Lunkadju. He's a, um, a Nanasan uh, guide, basically. So he's an indigenous Siberian uh, person who has been sent there to help Callum while he does his survey. And his dog as well, who's called Fenris. Those are two names you'll hear as well as Callum. The smell was overpowering. It was the fog of wet stone, like a dank medieval cellar. Callum moved forward, his elbows scraping past the naked ribs of rock, the torch beam fluttering ahead like a pale moth. In the closeness of the confines, every sound was amplified, from the faint whistling of his breath to the scraping of his toes on juts of stone. When Lunkadju called to check on him, his words were accelerated by the tunnel's natural rifling, until they flew past, deafening and garbled. Up ahead, the torchlight met with something. Callum stopped. He searched the obstruction out and homed in. Whatever it was, it was sizable, propped against the right-hand side of the tunnel and spreading out into the centre. It might have been a rock, but something about the shape and the glimmers of colour feeding back to him along the faint beam made him think otherwise. He edged forward until it was within reach. Then he refocused the torchlight. There, dimly illuminated, was another piece of bone. Only it wasn't carved or smoothed off on the surface. Instead, it looked brittle, jagged where it had been roughly snapped off. The shaft disappeared into a brownish oval, overhung by shreds of fabric. To the right was another, almost identical arrangement of bone, oval and shreds. 
though in this case the shaft was even more badly splintered. It took a while for Callum to realise what he was looking at. He recoiled suddenly, knocking the back of his head against the roof of the tunnel. Behind him, Fenris barked and Lunkadju's voice echoed past once more, prompting Callum to reply that he was okay. The two yellowing lengths of bone were clearly the remains of human femurs. Thigh bones, a honeycomb of marrow at their centres. Their distal heads had been snapped off, neither fracture appearing fresh. The dark ovals into which they disappeared were stumps of thigh, discs of quadricep and hamstring muscle left in cross-section around the nubs of bone, where both legs had been roughly hewn off above the knee. Callum reached out and prodded at the flesh. It was frozen solid. He moved the torch along what was left of the thighs. The beige trousers were made of animal skin. The fur was on the inside for insulation, and the outside had been sewn with black thread and treated with oil of some description, presumably for waterproofing. Strands of the material hung over the ends of the severed thighs, frozen to the muscle. The corpse lay on its front, arms outstretched. Around the torso was a fur parka, similar to Lunkadju's. The hands were frozen into claws, and a large hood concealed the head. Callum's brain flooded with a thousand questions. Most pressing was the matter of when exactly the person had died. Some Samoyedic peoples had maintained a traditional lifestyle for so long that a person alive at the time of Christ might have appeared identical to one alive today. There was nothing Callum wanted more than to accept that this was one of Lunkadju's earliest ancestors, perfectly preserved in time. But it was not that simple. When it came to human remains, getting the distinction right was crucial. It was the difference between an ancient burial and a modern murder victim. Between archaeological excavation and the forensic examination of a crime scene. He thought on it. The corpse was frozen solid, which might have suggested age. But then, in these temperatures, most things were frozen solid. The bone was an off-yellow colour, a sure sign of age under normal circumstances, but these were not normal circumstances, and whatever mechanism had removed the lower legs in the first place may have had a part to play in any colour change. Even the waterproofing agent from the clothing might have affected the bone composition. Then there was plain old scepticism. Just as he had argued with Jonas, the likelihood of anybody ever living at this latitude in the distant past was as remote as the place itself. But then... Was it any more likely that a modern Nanasan, Dolgan or Nenet had ended up lost out here, alone and unreported? Strictly speaking, the process now would be to record the body as it lay, before disturbing it. But on both the professional and personal level, Callum needed to be sure. He moved his hands gently along the sides of the thighs, to the base of the jacket. Around the top of the buttocks was strung a thick belt of hide. He followed it, patting his hands around the hips feeling more like a police officer frisking a crook than a professor of archaeology. The fingers of his left hand closed around an item dangling from the belt. He shifted his position and, as carefully as possible, peeled back the frozen flap of Parker. In his palm was a leather sheath, no more than 10 or 11 centimetres long. Within it sat a knife with a beautifully crafted bone handle. The patterns adorning hilt and handle were similar to those on the ski tip, though in this instance the paintwork was still pristine. Undoing the toggle clasp, he jiggled the blade upwards just far enough to reveal what it was made of. He held his breath. If it said, Clydebridge Steel, he would have his answer. It was an unadorned, smoky blue flint blade that met Callum's gaze. 
It was as skillfully fashioned as any he had ever excavated before, and still as sharp as the day it was napped. He let out a massive sigh of relief. In front of him was a genuine ice mummy, the archaeological equivalent of a lottery win. The freezing temperatures had prevented breakdown of the body's soft tissues by fungi and bacteria. Hair, nails and skin survived, as did stomach and bowel contents, clothing and other organic personal effects. In front of him was a near-complete picture of a past life frozen up into a human time capsule. Thank you very much, Benjamin. Again, terrifying. (laughs) I don't like the idea of finding thousands of thousands of years old of bowel contents <laughs> that is indeed a very scary thought pete like <laughs> <laughs> perhaps scarier than whatever was uh, was involved in the prologue there <laughs> um let's talk about uh, about you as a writer um is is writing a book something you've always wanted to do it's a pretty basic question i guess uh, yeah, I, I guess so. Well, certainly writing is something that I've always wanted to do. Um, whether it was heading towards a book or not is, is probably another matter. Um, I mean, I, I started off writing when I was very young and, and reading. Um, it was There was nothing original about it. It was just uh, things that I'd heard other people talking about, you know, with myself and others that I knew put in as characters, basically. And it kind of went from there, I guess, when I, when I was in my sort of mid-late teens. That's when I first started thinking about doing something a bit longer um, and potentially, you know, tr- trying to actually pull a, a full full length work together. So, yeah, and I, I guess realistically, it probably always has been something that's, you know, been there for me to do. Mm. Is there any particular books that um, that may have influenced you, do you, do you think, from, a, from an early age? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there, are, there are lots, you know, you've got your um, Tolkien's, uh, Roald Dahl, a whole panoply, really. But I, I guess the ones that really sort of, affected me when I was young and at that sort of impressionable age were probably the Terry Pratchett books, the Discworld series. Now, my dad was a particular fan of these and he he had most of them. He even had a signed one, which is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, I, I used to love nothing more than looking at the covers, really, um, when, it, when it first started. You know, the detail on there from, from Josh Kirby, the artist, was just immense. And it really was kind of um, inspiring for a kid of that age, you know, the, the level of detail. Mm-hmm. Um, moved on to actually reading what was written in the books as well and, and enjoyed that. So, yeah, I'd say they, had a, they probably had a, an influence on me wanting to do the same sort of thing, really. You got a favourite Pratchett character? Yeah, probably the, the luggage. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody's read the uh, Discworld novels, which a lot of you probably have, then yeah, the luggage that's got many, many legs runs around and does things of its own volition. So. <laughs> okay. Well, obviously we're talking thrills and spills. Um, what made you want to write thrillers? Thrillers, I guess I... <sighs> it's it's a genre that i've always i've always preferred really um not just in terms of books as well but in terms of uh films uh, if i'm going to watch a good film then it's you know it's it's more than likely going to be be something high octane but also yeah books as well you know i've been a fan of of writers such as james rollins and obviously michael crichton and others like that and it's i enjoy the experience of of, of being thrilled you know, um, it's it's something that I find takes me out of the sort of mundane, the mundanities of everyday life and, and really does allow me to escape, I guess. So, Do you fancy writing any uh, any other genre, do you think? You mentioned fantasy there with uh, with Pratchett. 
Yeah, I've never, I've never really. I mean, when I was very young, I attempted a kind of a fantasy. It was basically a ripoff of a Terry Pratchett book. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dress it up. It was it even had a kind of a cartoonish cover on it, which, um, you know, was was nothing, nowhere near as good as uh, what Josh Kirby can do. But uh, sort of as I've got older, really, um, the only other thing that's really sort of appealed to me is crime, really. So I'll, you know, um, that's something that I'll have a dabble with. But yeah, other than that, I think uh, action and and thrillers is really the, you know, it's but it's my first love. What's what's been the best thing about writing this book? Uh, well, there, there, there have been loads of good things about it. I have to say, if I had to pick a, a particular one, it's probably the research or the opportunities that it's allowed me to to research things. Anybody that's read it already will know that there are an awful lot of different machines and, you know, gadgets and things involved with the story. You know, we've got submarines, helicopters, hovercraft. There's even a mechanical excavator, a digger, you know. Um, there's all sorts in there. And kind of being able to research how these things worked and allowing that to kind of affect um, how they're used within the story was great. You know, it, it was fantastic. S- some of it, I was saying this to somebody the other day, some of it I, I got a bit carried away with initially and it had to come out basically because I was finding the detail more interesting than anybody else would, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's uh, that was probably one of the best things. Um, just to remind to everyone, you can uh, get your questions in in the comments, and I'll uh, I'll try my best to read as many of those out as I can. That's why don't we uh, why don't we have one now? Actually, where did you get your idea for the book, and how did you get your characters? Are they created around people you know? I hope not. To be perfectly honest, I haven't read it. <laughs> Um, so the, the idea for the book, I guess, was uh, it, it came to me in kind of in a piecemeal sort of format, really. I'd, I'd had this the idea of an Arctic setting. It'd been something that was kind of, you know, it wouldn't leave me. Probably when I was in my sort of early mid-20s, it started sort of featuring in, in what I was thinking I'd do with writing. Um, and then, yeah, I, I guess the archaeology element to it as well, Kate, obviously has come out of, of my own experience in, in that sort of area. But in terms of the characters, uh, there are there are a number, there are a number of people in there who I'm really glad that I I haven't met anybody similar to. I mean, there's some pretty nasty pieces of work in there, uh, but there are also you know I, I mean I think we've all met people who are highly strung. So for example, with Ava's character, the uh, Canadian paleontologist I mentioned earlier, you know she's extremely highly strung, but she does have this very deep sort of. Uh, interest in a particular area um and i've met a lot of people like that you know when, as soon as i can get them talking about something that they're interested in bang you know there could be anything could be happening in the background and they, they wouldn't care they're going to tell me about their thing you know so yeah I've, i guess i've met certain of the characters that are in there but yeah thankfully not not any of the bad ones really <laughs> this is a question from uh, i think christopher it says uh, when did you start writing fiction and what advice would you give to people just starting out trying to get interest from publishers? Okay, so I yeah, I started right. Well, I mean, we, we were saying just just now, I started writing fiction when I was very young indeed, and it you know it wasn't just stories; it was things like poetry. I had a lot of teachers at school who were uh, very keen on sort of getting me to do comic poems and sort of little comedy sketches and things like that as well. Um, and they were very encouraging to me. Um, they you know at that as much as anything else was quite a big influence on me in my early life the fact that they actually encouraged creativity in that sense i remember having one teacher who would if if i was to suggest to her can i 
you know, do this, create a story, create some kind of machine or a hoverboard we did once, she would be quite happy for me to stop doing whatever it was I was meant to be doing and go off and be creative, you know? And I think those are the sorts of people who can really make a difference, um, especially if, if you're like me and, and that, you know, creativity is your thing. If there was one thing that I'd say as a kind of a piece of advice to somebody that's that's trying to start out, it would be to, in a cliche sense, to, to write what you love, you know? You have to be sincere with what you put on the page. So I think we've probably all read books where we can see that it's been a rote process. It's been mechanical. Um, the person that's writing it it's, has been going through the motions a little bit. It's glaringly obvious to me, at least, when I'm reading that sort of book, and it completely turns me off. If you want to connect with people, you, they have to be able to sense your passion, pick it up off the page. So, yeah, if you write what you know, then you, you are, you're much more likely to come across um, as enjoying what you're writing. Good advice. Um, we've had an email. Ooh. Uh, it comes from Sarah, and she said uh, she wondered if you chose the Russian Arctic for the location for any particular reason. The well, the the Arctic, as um, as we were discussing before, is somewhere that um, I, I just find a fascinating, absolutely fascinating landscape. It's it, it really is one of the last sort of real remote wildernesses uh, in places you know and i think it's become more of an interest to me since um we've started to see um changes in that area in terms of the climate i mean the fact that callum is finding uh, an ice mummy for example is is not beyond the realms of of believability these days you know every day on the sort of uh, websites that i'm looking at for archaeology people are finding things that are emerging out of the, what was permafrost you know whether it's um a frozen dire wolf or you know a mammoth or whether it's um a kind of a, a flint napping site where people have sat and chipped arrowheads at one point you know all this stuff is is gradually sort of being you know kind of pushed out of the receding ice and it makes it a very mystical and a very a very um you know inspiring and giving place and particularly fecund for for an author because there's an awful lot you can do um with that sort of landscape did you say dire wolf so they, they were real. Indeed. They were, yeah. Uh, so George R.R. <laughs> R. Martin was just making up stuff. No, well, it, his his versions are, are obviously slightly caricatured, but uh, yeah, there was a thing called a direwolf, and it was uh, it was about twenty or thirty percent larger than you basic grey wolf these days. And um, this, uh, I was reading a thing the other day which suggested that they they may even have been a completely different species. So this this was a big animal, <laughs> a big predator. At a time when, of course, all the game was enormous as well. So nice to know. Mm. Um, another question here in the comments. It said, I would imagine the archaeological aspects of the book would have been easy for you, but which parts of the book proved more of a challenge to research? The archaeology obviously is something that I'm very familiar with. So that was that was reasonably easy to, to write. But then again, you, you know, it kind of puts a bit of responsibility on you as well to make sure that you get it right. You know, the last thing you want to do if you if you supposedly know your onions about something is to then mix your onions up in a, in a permanent format like a book. So I did have to check and recheck certain things. I guess, yeah, it was it was probably, as I was saying before, a lot of the machinery that was used. I mean, helicopters play a big role towards the end of the book. I, I know nothing about helicopters, or at least I didn't before I started writing this. And then I started finding out things about, you know, concepts about the aerodynamics of them, things called resonant yaw and things of this nature, you know, which were I, I'd never have had any idea about before. But they fed directly into the narrative, you know. They kind of influenced what my characters did. 
So, uh, yeah, that was, that was probably the bit that was a bit tougher to write. It required a lot more research. Linda is asking, have you ever fancied writing a romance novel? A romance novel? Mm. Yeah. I think I'd be... Oh, the, no. <laughs> I'd, I'd probably be more likely to have a crack at an erotic novel, to be honest. Than a, Ooh, than a, yeah. ooh la la. No, not, not quite so subtle. <laughs> Really nice, is it? <laughs> the next Jilly Cooper. Is that, is that what's going to happen? <laughs> hey, old James. Yeah. yeah. There's a question I was going to ask that's actually come up in the comments as well. Um, are we going to have a return to Harmsworth Island? Is a, Are we looking at maybe a follow-up to this at all? I, I hope so. I, I, I'm Well, I mean, yes, there will be. Um, I've actually, I've written a second book. It's not a follow-on. It's not a sequel to Colony. Um, it's on a different subject matter it's still an action thriller but hopefully that that will hit the shelves um maybe next year or sometime but yeah i have particularly through the process of of sort of bringing this to publication and um sort of getting to where where i am with it now obviously with the launch today it's kind of it's grabbed me again so i I feel the need to get certain of the characters back onto armsworth and uh yeah, to, 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 to see what happens this time around. So, yeah, there will be another one. Yeah, so watch this space. Excellent. Look forward to that. Um, I've got a question here from Helen, who has asked, was there a plan of character development uh, at the planning stage for Callum Ross? Uh, and did it change during the writing process? So was there character development? So was there a plan for character development? Or did, ah. he, sort of, did, he, did he develop sort of naturally or organically, if you like? Yes, yeah, so Callum's an interesting character. He's, I mean, he's the main character, but also in a lot of senses, he's kind of, he's one of the less sort of far out there characters as well. I mean, I, I like Callum. I, f- I feel comfortable around Callum. You know, he's um, he, he's quite funny. He's obviously um, one of the more normal people that you'll meet through the course of the book. He's almost like an objective correlative for some of the other characters. But when I first started writing him, I didn't I didn't think that he was going to be quite as as funny as I ended up sort of like fashioning him to be. Or, or that he turned out to be. You know, I, I just had a guy who was going to be reasonably sort of, he had his head on straight, he had issues, but, you know, um, he, he was fairly, he was he was going to crack on and get on with whatever needed to be done. Um, but he gradually, yeah, he started to charm me and I I, I found the, you know, the sense of humour side of him uh, quite appealing. So, yeah, he, he developed himself to a larger extent. Um, there's a few comments coming in about uh, this sounds like it could be turned into a film uh now i'm going to ask my own question here <laughs> now you appeared on my podcast the Dreamfest podcast quick plug there guys you can check it out on brumradio.com slash podcast and i asked you who would appear in the film if this was to be made into a film mm. and you cleverly avoided that question at the time and i sort of understand why but i'm going to push you now <laughs> who, who, who would play callum ross in the film of colony I don't know, Pete, I might have to cast you in it. I don't know. <laughs> I do a mean Scottish accent. Yeah, too. I bet you, you can, can't you? Yeah. I don't. I, I, do you know what? I honestly don't know. Uh, James McAvoy. I was thinking James McAvoy. Yeah? Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I'm yeah. I, sorted. I'll get him on the phone. Excellent. Yeah. Let's let, let's start discussing terms and then we can get this, uh, get this show on the road. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Um, let's have a look, see what else we've got. Uh, also, pleased to hear this Diables are real. Very good. Mm. I'm not. Let's have a look. What else we got? Is anyone, does anyone want to ask a question directly? Am I feeling brave? Put, put your hand up on on the screen if you do, and uh, Pete will let you on. Oh, we've got a hand up in the back there. Uh, Martin Law screen at the top there. Uh, I think that's that's Pat, isn't it? I just cannot wait for the next book. I'm still 
And that, when you just read that to me, I just can't wait for the oh. next fantastic pack well yeah it's it, it's coming don't worry there'll be it, there'll be a return to harmsworth and uh yeah i'll, I'll make sure you get a, a a copy so have a look at um you know as soon as as soon as it's anywhere near so I'm, I'm really glad that you enjoyed it by the way and thank you ever so much for your review it was a fantastic review it was really really touching uh, i've <laughs> got a question here from hannah who asked is uh, how is colony different from other books in the genre well, one of the one of the ways that I hope it's slightly different is uh, is that there's a kind of more, I guess, more fluidity to the writing. It's a slightly more less prosaic and more, you know, there's more um, of a description. There's an awful lot of description of the islands and, um, you know, the, the sort of landscapes and things out there. So my hope was that it would it would kind of be slightly better better written or better phrased than a lot of action thrillers can be. Um, obviously, there's kind of plot. And then there's the way that you tell the plot, you know, um, the kind of the voice. And in a lot of a lot of action thrillers, it's the plot that is very firmly in the driving seat and characterization and uh, voice and all the rest of it can very much play second fiddle. So I guess I was I was conscious of that and I, I tried not to do it. Um, you know, it's not entirely possible when you're talking about things like, you know, explosions going off and bullets whizzing everywhere and things hanging around the place um but i did what i could and hopefully it's come across to some extent um is anyone else got a question they'd like to ask oh yes we've got there tom how are you doing all right yeah some authors have uh, sort of crossed the barrier into uh, graphic novels neil gaiman for example do you think there is scope for a colony graphic novel or to like maybe even work specifically for the graphic novel market, write stories for graphic novel in particular. Yeah, I, that's a, that's a really good question. Actually, I think I I do think that there would be scope for it. It's not something that I that I'd considered doing or you know trying to try to put into effect. But now that you mention it, I think there is that kind of. You know, we've talked about how there's kind of a, a, a film-like narrative to it as well. It's in, in a sense, it's a bit like a film script, you know, in book form. I think that translates very well into a graphic novel as well. I can imagine some of a lot of the characters being very good cartoons, you know. So I, I think that there would be scope for that, absolutely. And I, you know, if it if it ever happens, I'll very much enjoy to see it. <laughs> Talking of design, uh, Joe asks, did you design the cover for Colony? I did not. This was um, a guy at the uh, publishers who who did, a guy called Jack. He was brilliant. I mean, the cover is exactly what I'd hoped the cover would look like, you know. So I we had initial discussions and he said, look, what sort of stuff do you want on it? And I said, oh, well, I want some helicopters and a gun and <laughs> all this stuff. And he basically said, well, no, you don't need that at all. What, what you need is this. Um, and he, he He's put it all together, and yeah, when he first showed me, I was just blown away by it. It was a really, really, really strong effort. When I see it against other novels in on the various bookshops, it uh, it really stands out to me. You know, it's um, it, it's kind of eye catching. Um, is there any particular reason for the connection with Scotland and Aberdeen? Asks Duncan. Scotland is the most northerly nation, I believe, which isn't one of considered one of the Arctic nations. You know, so there is a, actually a kind of a connection between um, certainly some of the northern parts of Scotland. So when you get up into the Orkneys and not a million miles away from places that are Arctic. Um, and so there's, there is, does tend to be academically a bit of crossover and a bit more interest in, you know, um, that 
source of archaeology. So I wanted, I guess, more for authenticity's sake than anything, I wanted somebody who would realistically perhaps get involved in something in the Arctic. You know, you know a, guy, a guy from Southampton's press, perhaps less likely to, you know, to, to be called upon to go up there and do that sort of stuff. Though yeah. not impossible, but uh, all the same. Um, Rachel has got a question. Rachel, do you want to unmute yourself? Hello. Hi, um, Rachel. Good morning from Australia. Oh, good <laughs> good morning. Thank you very, very much indeed morning. for getting up so early. What, what time is it over there? You started at 5.30am our time, but um, it was it was light from 4.15, so we're all good. Okay. I'm so sorry, though. I'm I'm no. So <laughs> um, you've talked a little bit about the writing process, but it really interests me how with a full-time job and you know a, a senior full-time job and a young family and a property to look after I'd love to hear about how you prioritize time um, to really sit down and do this thing that you love that's a really good question actually Rachel um I guess it for me it comes in quite intense bursts really I I've never you know my, my lifestyle isn't one that allows me to kind of settle into much of a routine although I have to say, since we've all been in sort of lockdown 10 or whatever we're in now, it's been a lot more possible, <laughs> you know, because I'm not so, um, I'm not here, there and everywhere and the rest of it. But as a rule, when there's not a, a pandemic on the go, um, I, you know, there's just finding a routine is just not really going to happen. So I, I will tend to work in bursts. I'll either, um, you know, I'll, I'll start getting up very, very early in the morning for periods of time. I, I think when I wrote my second novel, it, I was getting up at four o'clock in the morning every morning and I did that for a year and it was hard at first but it suddenly became second nature you know after a couple of weeks and it allowed me to kind of pour my my early day energy into into the book into the writing but yeah I mean there's no there's not really any sense of routine at the moment I'm kind of waiting for you know for to, to develop one for the for the next uh, the next book basically in answer to your question Rachel I, it's very difficult and it involves a lot of juggling and a lot of sacrifice. Good stuff. Anyone else like to ask a question? Uh, well, actually, Ben, uh, you might be able to set the, uh, an argument between me and my wife. Is it pronounced Diplodocus or Diplodocus? Oh, well, there's a question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it, it, it's kind of a, uh, uh, you know, a, a tomato-tomato situation. That, um, oh, okay. I quite, I, I prefer, I, I think I would probably have to say Diplodocus, but I mad I prefer saying Diplodocus. I have to say. Ah, well, <laughs> I'm going to take your first answer on that one. Diplodocus sounds more lumbering to me. It kind of it seems to match the beast, you know. Yeah, I guess Diplodocus. So. But I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm claiming moral victory on that one. Thank you okay. for that. Anybody else like to ask a question? We got Paul oh, down there. Go for it, Paul. I'd like to unmute yourself. There we go. Far away. Okay. Thank you very much, Pete. Uh, hello, Ben. It's just to know, uh, really, whether there's any chance of an uh, audible version. Oh, an audible version. I've got a, uh, a, a relative who is blind. Uh, he's had the book described to him, but I uh, was asked, really, if that could be a possibility in the future. Hmm. It's there's well there's no thank thanks for your question Paul there's no there's no immediate plan for it but it is a possibility I think the the difficulty I've got is obviously I'm a debut novelist I I've, I've yet to sort of prove myself to those who um you know who who pull the strings um so I need to I, I really need to demonstrate via sales 
as much as anything else that it's something that would be worthwhile converting into audio um that's the that's the reality of it i think if you know the signs look good at the moment it seems like it's been well received it seems like um you know a lot of people are enjoying the book it's getting very good reviews so hopefully if it continues to do that then there will be um you know there will be a waste of argument for uh, bringing out different versions and you know potentially um published in different places and things of that nature but yeah i I think it's something that we'll need to wait and see how well the the actual um paperback and, and digital versions do first I do agree that it'd be a wonderful thing though. And I think that audio audio books are obviously extremely popular at the moment. And um, yeah, it's something I'd like to see happen. Good stuff. Anybody else before we round up for this evening? Have you ever forgot to click save from oh, Alex? <laughs> 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 I, do you know, I have, and it was one of the worst things ever. I can, anybody that's done that before, even if it's with, you know, if you've been doing a bit of report for work or, um, you know, any, whatever you've been doing, it's, it's possibly the worst thing, isn't it? When you've spent a long time doing something and you haven't been saving it as you go along and then you lose it all. And it's kind of, oh my God, facing hands moment, really. Uh, we've had a couple more just oh, pop in here. Uh, do you use writing software? The author says as you go, like Scrivener, is that how it's pronounced? Scrivener? Maybe that's just a bit of advice, actually, rather than an actual question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is there an opportunity that this collective could become part of a whole world of novels on different adventures? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'll, I'll start. Um, I'm going to be starting on the sequel, so we'll we'll get that underway. But I don't see any reason why not. I mean, it, again, these things, I'm not one of those authors that sits there at the start of everything and plots everything out in excruciating detail you know we kind of fall into two camps there are people that do that um you know they have to know everything where every little dot's going to occur and you know what's going to happen all the way through Uh, they have to plot it all out before they start the writing process for me i'm in the other sort of school of thought which is that you have uh, an idea where you're going to start you have an idea of main things and sequences throughout and an idea of where it's going to end and then you go for it and you you let your characters kind of massage things along so i mean i would i see potential for there to be a wider um series absolutely um but i guess if i come to the end of this second second book when i start on it and you know the characters and the narrative are are kind of indicating that it's not going to work then that's probably going to be the priority for me um, rather than trying to force it, you know, because then I'll end up in that situation I was warning against earlier, which is writing something that you don't believe in. I see the potential basically for a series, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, Fiona is asking, how have you found launching a book in the midst of a pandemic? Ah, right. Well, yeah, that is interesting, actually. That's, I mean, obviously, this is the first, this is my first book launch, so I've got no real basis for comparison. Um, however, it it has, it's become clear to me that, um, you know, things are happening very differently this, this time around. I mean, this, what we're doing now, you know, this is, this has become the norm almost for, for people that are, are launching books and also for signings and, you know, everything to do with an author um, sort of getting together with, with people that like his books. It's all become online, obviously, like everything else. Uh, and that has been, it's been a very interesting development, I think, and a very big change that the publishing industry has had to make as well as any other industry. You know, they're, they're, they're in the same boat as everybody else. So we've all had to adapt. And I guess the other thing to say would be that it's been very much more focused on sort of online 
um, sales platforms as well. So, you know, it's you can where the ideal would previously have been to have, you know, your books out on on the shelves at the moment. That's kind of irrelevant. You know, I mean, ultimately, it's it's if you've got your books available uh, online for people to purchase, because that's where we're doing our shopping at the moment mm. for a larger part. So, yeah, it's it's been interesting. Steep learning curve. Yeah. Do you always write sober? Asks Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, usually however i'm not averse to uh, having a couple of beers and and seeing what what happens uh, what usually happens is quite a garbled sort of <laughs> formless splurge of words really um which i then have to go back through the next day and uh, either you know completely delete or um completely rearrange basically but uh, yeah it's it's been known it's been known <laughs> question and paul's asking another question how might the pandemic have a role in future stories do you think that is something that i've given an awful lot of thought to actually in a more general sense throughout the uh this process it's so writing in a genre so writing genre fiction and popular fiction is a very reactive process it's kind of your characters in order to be authentic if you're setting them in the present day have to reflect present day trends so, you know, as soon as people started using drones for all sorts of things, you know, and then drones started and other bits of technology, mobile phones, it all suddenly starts to become part of the narrative um, of contemporary books as well. So you have to you have to keep your eye on uh, on what's happening. You have to keep your finger on the pulse of society more widely and you have to try and make that or reflect it within your, your book. So, I mean, the pandemic has obviously been such a massive thing such a massive event in all of our lives i mean you know it's it's unlike anything else that certainly i've ever experienced and i imagine most of the rest of you as well so i cannot imagine that we won't start to see a pandemic um you know books that are set within a world that is is in lockdown in effect and 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 quite quite a few of them as well i imagine it will become you know if not its own little sort of fashion or, or um, genre, it will certainly become quite commonplace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anybody else before we wrap up? Oh, we've got Sir Sophia. Do you want to unmute yourself? Okay. Uh, first of all, greetings from Portugal. Okay. Hello, um, Portugal. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Sophia. <laughs> Hello. Um, so I wrote down the question to make sure I don't stutter, considering that English isn't my native language. Uh, but my question is, do you want each book to stand on its own or are you trying to build a body of work with connections between each book? I see. Good question. Yeah, that is a good question. I, At the moment, my thinking is that I, I would like to run two sort of series concurrently. So I've got Colony, obviously, which is um, which is out at the moment and which I will hopefully be, be writing the sequel to um, pretty soon. But I've also got an, the other novel that I mentioned before, Sophia, which, um, uh, which I'd written and which is ready once it's been edited really to to start sort of trying to trying to publish as well and that that features a completely different character it's still an action thriller but it's a different character and different sort of there's a different trajectory to it and what i'd like to do ideally would be to sort of do one of the harmsworth series and then one of that series from the second book and then so on so forth and to, to try and run them concurrently that that's the kind of very you know simplistic idea that i've got at the moment um whether it works out that way is only time will tell but 
I guess I'd, I'd never really considered trying to link the two different series, you know, not in the way that um, I, uh, I know that Stephen King tries to link a lot of his books, his standalone novels with a specific character, doesn't he, um, who, who recurs throughout. Um, so, no, that's not something that I'd thought about, but it's an interesting thought. So, um, yeah, maybe, who knows? I'll, I'll give it some more thought. <laughs> For those of you who haven't uh, pre-ordered your copy, I haven't got your copy yet, uh, where can they order their copy from, Ben? Well, at the moment, um, you can get it from, you can still get it from Amazon. You can get it direct from the publisher as well, which is Book Guild. Um, you can get it from from anywhere, really, that, that they sell books. Waterstones, WH Smiths, you can get it from, uh, there's free international delivery if you get it from places like Book Depository and Hive. I'm aware that at the moment, the it's sold an awful lot of copies on pre-order, basically. So I spoke to the publisher earlier today and asked them why I was looking on certain sites. And they were saying, um, you can get it, but we'll need to order it and it will take slightly longer and things like this. And they were saying, basically, it's sold, um, the, the quotas that have been ordered in have sold basically on pre-order. And because of uh, the situation in the world at the moment, it's taking longer for people to restock. So if you do look anywhere and you find that it's out of stock or that it's going to take a while to order, don't worry, you will be able to get it. It's just going to take a bit longer than usual um, because of the circumstances, basically. But yeah, you can get it from anywhere that you buy books, um, paperback and digital. It is digital as well, yeah. Yeah, you can get it as an ebook on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble in the US, Kobo, uh, Google Play. Um, yeah, all, all of the all, all the main platforms basically. If no one else has got any more questions, then I think we'll wrap up. Anyone else? Um, oh, Sarah did pop in um, to say that she had sent in an email, which we have addressed, Sarah. Um, this will be available as a podcast, so you can listen to that when it's out. Keep up to date with Ben on social media, which is where Ben. Uh, best place to go is, is probably the website, which is www.benjamin-cross.com. Uh, and in terms of social media handles, you can find me on Twitter. They're all listed on the website and uh, and you can search for me easily enough on the, the various social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Insta, uh, Goodreads, all all the usual ones, basically. And yeah, if you do, if you if you if you want to connect, then and say hi, then yeah, I'll um, you, you'll get a response from me, and um, it'll be good to good to have a chat. Wonderful. Okay, well, Benjamin, I'm going to leave the uh, the last few words to yourself. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Pete. That's um, yeah, just heartfelt. Thanks for for taking the time and for uh, for acting as master of ceremonies on this one. It's been it's been great. Thank you very much indeed. I look forward to to listening back on the podcast as well. And then yeah, just just to everybody else, I just wanted to say just a massive thank you, not only for you know giving up your time this evening to come and come and watch, but also for your support throughout the process so far. It's um. Obviously, it's it's not a particularly easy sort of industry to break into, um, and as a debut novelist, you need you really do need all the leg ups and all the help and all the support that you can get. I heard there's a, a quite a common saying within um, within writers circles, which is if you think writing a novel is hard, try getting somebody to buy it. And I, I have to say, I, I've been lucky enough not to have not to have felt that way. Um, you know, you guys in particular and others as well who aren't here tonight have supported me 100 percent. And you, you really have, you know, you, you've helped you've helped uh, Colony uh, launch very successfully today. And I'm, I'm extremely thankful to all of you. So thanks a lot and stay in touch. Uh, and yeah, we will uh, <clears throat> we'll we'll continue to uh, to enjoy fiction and uh, yeah, to uh, to stay in touch. Thanks, guys. Have a good evening.
there we have it. That was the official launch of the debut novel, the action thriller Colony by Benjamin Cross. Why we were launching that, Colony became a Barnes & Noble bestseller. If you want to get your hands on a copy, you can go to Ben's website, www.benjamin-cross.com, and help boost those numbers. A couple of other places you can go to hear about Ben is the Brum Radio website. You may have heard me mention my podcast, the Dreamfest podcast, where Ben was my guest and he talks about his love of music and creates his Dream Festival lineup. You can listen to that at brumradio.com slash dreamfest hyphen podcast, or go to wherever you listen to your podcast, including Spotify and iTunes. You can go to brumradio.com slash brumhour to hear Ben talking to the award-winning Dave Massey on the 1st of February, 2021. That's all from me. Thank you to everyone who joined us and thank you for listening. This was a special Catch the Buzz production for the Brum Radio podcast channel. Thank you for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your podcast app.